3: Hello, and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. For this episode, we're revisiting one of our favorite events from the past few years, the Poetry Pharmacy. Back in 2019, we gathered a pretty stellar lineup to celebrate the power of poetry, all thanks to the vision of publisher William Sieghart. Sieghart's Poetry Pharmacy books look to use the written word as a healing antidote to many of life's everyday challenges. William will be returning to the stage with Intelligence Squared alongside BBC broadcaster Sarah Montague and another great lineup of actors to make the words of great poets come alive at the Tabernacle in London on Tuesday the 5th of December. Do join us and head to intelligencesquared.com for tickets or see more in the episode description. But for now, let's jump back to 2019 and our event, The Poetry Pharmacy Returns. On stage were Sieghart, the novelist and broadcaster, Sarah Dunant, plus actors Dominic West, Nina Sassania, Greta Scacchi, and Martha West. The event was chaired by the author, playwright and broadcaster, Bonnie Greer.
0: I, I got uh, rained on at, at the Frankfurt Book Fair, rushing down streets looking for Goethe, so my voice might actually go, which might people might think that's actually a very good thing. We're here tonight, I I hate the phrase celebrate poetry, I have no idea what that means, but we're here tonight to um, I guess show and express something um, that I'm incapable of doing for sure and uh, in having a brief conversation uh, with William, I felt I wanted to say something about the poetic dimension which is a quality of our humanity, maybe the quality of our humanity. I don't know how we make poems. I don't know what drives us to make poems. I don't know how poetry heals, but it does. It does. And there's something in us that needs it, that creates it, that is us. So we're going to show that tonight. We're going to talk a bit about that tonight, if it's even possible to do that, and share with you some uh, powerful poetry. And maybe I'd love to ask Sarah and and William both, what is a poem? How does a thing become a poem? What is a poem as as opposed to something else? So let me start with, to my stage right, William Siegert, who established the forward prizes for poetry and National Poetry Day. He's a publisher, distinguished publisher of poetry. His anthology, The Poetry Pharmacy, was published in 2017 to great acclaim, and he is now followed up with a poetry pharmacy returns, more prescriptions for courage, healing, and hope. Williams Hickert. <laughs> to my left is a woman I've been actually, we've, come, we've sort of been like ships in the night. We passed each other for two decades. You know, I've known Sarah's work, big fan of it, never actually met her, which is like really weird, but here she is. She is, of course, an award-winning writer, broadcaster, lecturer, and critic. She's worked for many years for the BBC in radio and television, presenting arts programs for BBC Two and Radio Three's Nightwaves, and most recently, two series on history for Radio Four, When Greeks Flew Kites. Her most recent novels, including In the Name of the Family and Blood and Beauty, set in Renaissance Italy, have become international bestsellers and translated into 30 languages that envy her so much. Sarah Dunant. <laughs> <clears throat> now, being in the theater, I did tell this company here, I actually feel... Actually, ridiculous, introducing them because they are distinguished household names, faces, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I've got these biogs, and I will read them out, even though, of course, you all know who they are, we all know who they are. Anyway, stage right, Greta a award-winning actor whose film credits include Heat and Dust, White Mischief, The Browning Version, Jefferson in Paris. The Player and The Falling. She has appeared in numerous television productions, including the BBC's recent War and Peace. On the West End stage, she has appeared in The Entertainer, Deep Blue Sea, and Uncle Vanya, and I'm like shaking to be on the stage with her Greta Skaki. Next to Greta is the great Nina Sosanya, who did a, a, a reading of a play uh, of mine and so I sort of sat in the back uh, trembling with gratitude. She is best known for her roles in W1A, Last Tango in Halifax, and Killing Eve 2. There goes my voice. She recently f- uh, finished filming an adaptation of Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials for BBC HBO, Nina Sassana. And Dominic West, not a homeboy, but he sure sounds like one when he wants to. Actor and director, perhaps best known for playing Jimmy McNulty in The Wire, and Fred West, in appropriate adult, for which he won the BAFTA for Best Actor in 2012. He's since starred in the drama series The Affair... And of course, says Jean Valjean in the BBC adaptation of Les Misérables, Dominic West. <clears throat> we have an empty chair here, which is always a very intriguing thing on a stage, always the center of attention. It's like the most dangerous thing you can have on a stage is a gun and an empty chair. We've got an empty chair and I won't say anything about that until it's time. I'd like to now... Uh, talk to William and Sarah a bit about poetry, which is a very strange kind of subject. And William, can you tell us the history, first of all, the poetry, pharmacy returns? And remember, we were talking about... uh, It must have been very overwhelming for you to sort of get the response you got for the first book and and how it came to you. How do you reckon this all sort of
4: happened? Uh, Well, delightfully, in a way, the whole thing happened by mistake. Um, which is how the best things in life happen, I suppose. Um, I spent a lifetime trying to get poetry out of Poetry Corner with National Poetry Day and things, and um, maybe making the corner a teeny bit bigger. But one day uh, in 2012, when the Olympics were happening, I was invited down by uh, somebody who was programming the Port Elliott Literary Festival, Jenny Dyson, and she said, you're always sending me poems to cheer me up when, when my dad died and I got divorced and all that. Um, I'm setting you up at this festival in a tent with a shrinks couch, a chair, a prescription pad. You must photocopy every poem you can think of that might help people. And I'm going to book people in for 10, 15, 20-minute sessions to come and tell you their worries. And I went, oh, okay. Uh, I thought I'd do it for an hour. And six hours later, with a very full bladder, there was still a queue waiting around the tent. And I realized, having spent a lifetime trying to promote poetry... That she'd come up with the most extraordinary idea.
0: Was well, it shocking for you, because you, you're a publisher, and so in a sense you're back in the back in a way. You know, you you know what a poem is, you know how to promote poetry, but for some for an audience to come at you as kind of the bringer of poetry must have been
4: a overwhelming, shaker, a shaker, awfully overwhelming, humbling. And uh, what I realised as I sat in that tent was that. Pretty quickly, I needed a box of Kleenex. Not, not for myself, but for people coming in. And I suddenly realised that Jenny was really onto something, that we, we need poetry in life. We, we want to turn to poetry because it gives us a sense of complicity with how we feel, often when we're feeling really troubled, but we don't know where to look. And hence, we look in the traditional places for poems for grief or love or whatever, but actually, this is a bigger picture. We find complicity in... Poetry, poetry has almost become like the secular liturgy. It's become where uh, where we look for both spiritual and emotional support and
3: understanding. <laughs> That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared. Sarah, a
0: question I guess I've always wanted to ask. The second question I've always wanted to ask this is good you went to renaissance italy yeah that's where you are
1: yeah yeah but i'm here tonight no it's but i'm right. just saying <laughs> but i'm
0: just saying that's where you are as a creator as a novelist as a poet you know How, is there a poetic dimension there for you did it choose you or did you
1: choose it Look, I'm here as an interloper and a refusenik. And in fact, when they rang me up and said, would you do this? I said, you shouldn't ask me. I don't really like poetry. (laughs) And their reaction was, you're just the person that we need. And so I'm sort of here to say that I've been on a journey over the last four or five weeks getting ready for this event and that, yeah, there's poems in Renaissance Italy, but, God, they're written by Dante and they go on for 1,700 pages and they're in very archaic Italian, so I can't do those. But I was one of the kind of people that I think you were talking about, William, who for whom poetry was a closed book and it was largely because I was force-fed it at school. I was force-fed poetry that was clearly extremely worthy but never wonderful. It never took off. Indeed, I remember the joke in my school about we were taught the Lady of Shalott by Tennyson and we all knew the line because I was at a girls' school and when that time of the month came upon us, we would all go around going, the curse has come upon us, said the Lady of Shalott. (laughs) So uh, I think I then began to associate it with high culture. And I went my way reading history and going into journalism and becoming a novelist and looking for language. Language was really important, but language that was transparent and had clarity and elegance, not what felt to me that dense wood, which you had to be brave enough to enter to get poetry out. And so then... I read William's book, and it struck me that what you had done, William, was something quite extraordinary. Maybe we could only do it at this moment in our time. We are in a very troubled time at the moment in all kinds of ways, and we need help in the things that we are feeling. And so, what you did is to make poetry walk out and talk to us as if it was our problem that it had
0: had first. But can I push thing. back a tiny bit on this before we go further? You're a poet. There is no way that you aren't, because, look, you, you can have a label about it, and, and that's what you want to do, but your books enter a world that only a poet can go into with any kind of courage and authenticity and you do it. Now, you can call it something else if you like, but yeah, I'm going to say that Yeah, but they're awfully long. I know, it's all right. I, but <laughs> I'm going to say that. Can I ask the company something, if I have a voice? All of you have done something that we haven't done. You've lived in the poetic dimension as performers. You've lived in it. You've done Shakespeare. You've done Goethe. You've been in it. And you've come in it with technique, with your own stories, with the work of your director, whatever. Does anybody want to share briefly... What being in the poetic dimension is like, the demands of the poetic dimension as an actor, because I'm not an actor, but I know enough about Shakespeare that there is a, and, and, and Chekhov is poetic, of course, there is a way that you have to embody this, in a sense, in your mind and in your voice that captures everything, all of it that it's supposed to be. I mean, can anyone share any of that, like being inside this work, in the theatre. I,
5: I, do, I do think, um, if I don't understand the poem, or to, to speak it out <coughs> loud, or even to yourself, to physicalise it in that way, always unlocks something. How do
0: you physicalize it, Dominic? Just a tiny little...
5: Just, just read it. I mean, read it out loud, rather than in your head. And then the next level is if you learn it. If you learn it. And, and it was always, you know, it's frowned upon for kids to learn poems, but actually, <coughs> if you learn a poem or a piece of Shakespeare or anything like that, you, your understanding is, is infinitely greater, I, I yeah. feel. Yes, you inhabit the poem suddenly, don't you? But, but, yeah, but, and they're made, to, they're made to be heard, I think, like Shakespeare yeah. is made to be heard, not read. But, yeah. but,
0: but, the, but the difference is, and I, I just wanted to say that in terms of the theatre, you can stand and deliver, and it's a horrible performance. That's horrible. And, and also, Shakespeare's in your body. I mean, it's in your body, and there's a moment when you feel it in your body... And that's when it starts to actually live and be. And I just wanted to get a, a tiny bit before we go on, just what it's like to be on a stage with the lights on you, and you do this every night. You have to start again every night. It's not you're carrying it on. You start I, every night I, and you learn every night.
6: Specific about rhythm, about like you were just saying about r- repetition and rhythm mm-hmm. that you um, y- that you get. Inside, I suppose and that comes with learning something you understand the rhythm and you can uh, anticipate that rhythm so that you're slightly ahead of Mm -hmm. of the beats Mm -hmm. of what you want to communicate Mm -hmm. Um, also uh, your own particular context um, plays so much a a big part of of the way that you will interpret a poem or, or a play or just words that other people know they're going to be your own you're going to, to take your own rhythm, even even with all the technique that we have. It's still, your own body.
0: So, can I ask you before we go on to start to read the question that I asked William? That I'm interested again because you perform poetry to a certain extent in character. You have to do that. You have to do it with your voice, do it with your mind. What do you think is happening now? that makes people want to reach out to poetry as actors because your business is constantly looking at human beings, understanding as much as you can about human beings, finding the tiny things that people do in gesture. You know, what do you, th- do you think something is happening? Do you feel something as actors that something is happening that makes people turn to want to encounter a, a book like the Poetry Pharmacy and need it?
7: Well, I, yeah. I, I think there's... I think uh, for me, I'm feeling with my generation, who, Mm. like you, uh, I think a lot of people are a bit disillusioned when they're sort of trawling through a GCSE poetry list. But there's two dimensions which bring that alive. One is the theatre and that embodiment of poetry. But I think another thing that makes poems hugely relevant to young people today is rap music and, um, and the musical nature of poetry in a way that is, makes poetry more accessible than, you know, reading a, 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 a novel that won the Booker Prize or, or something that might, re- might require not only more attention span but, um, but also doesn't have that kind of lyrical accessibility in a way.
4: Do you know, I, it's really exciting because poetry sales, book sales, have gone up 50% in the last three years. And there is, it's the fastest growing uh, literary art form. And the reason is a combination of rap music and social media. The poetry world was tied up for a long time by half a dozen middle-aged, white, middle-class men who were the poetry editors of Favour and Favour and Chateau and all these various poetry publishers. And they shared pretty much the same views as what a good poem was. When Instagram came along, it had allowed all kinds of people of different generations to put their stuff out there, build millions of followers, in Rupi Kaur's case, and suddenly the publishers were chasing people like her and saying, I want to publish your work. And she's now the best-selling poet of all time. It's really exciting. And in some ways, poetry in the 19th century was a big popular thing. When Tennyson's latest collection came out, people queued for it. But then there was no competition. It was very hard to get hold of any culture if you didn't live in a big city. Come the 1950s and poetry suddenly got subsumed into different other art forms. People will tell you Van Morrison, Leonard Cohen, uh, Bob Dylan and the, the poets. Poets became copywriters in advertising. They wrote jingles on the radio and everything else. Uh, poetry is alive and well but the combination of rap and social media means it's exploding. And, and it's that's most ex- beautiful. That it is, is beautiful. beautiful and I think in part it's because of something deeper as well which is that we don't go to commune together on a Sunday or a Saturday anymore in churches and mosques and synagogues in the way in which people used to 50 years ago. And we've lost touch with some kind of liturgical shared element in our lives. And the canon of poetry has become a kind of secular liturgy. And people are finding things in poetry and sharing them with each other, saying, this is how I feel. Something expressed rather more elegantly than I can express myself but I have a real sense of complicity with this, and it makes me feel understood. And I think what's so exciting in a poem when it happens is it means I'm not mad, I'm not alone. And what's more, if somebody wrote this 700 years ago, this is normal how I feel. And in this, as Sarah said, this very troubling, difficult world in which we live in today, the poem moors us, gives us a sense of continuity, gives us a sense of high tide and low tide. So we
0: can feel the link between those generations as well. We're not alone. So let's
1: get into the we are going
0: to do that now yeah. because yeah. you
1: are going to do the first one. So I'm going to start with the first choice of poem, which is called An Invitation. Um, I, I work in history a great deal. And if there's one thing that stands out in history like anything, it's the bad deal women have had over centuries. And specifically, they've had a bad deal in terms of they cannot get their hands on power and the only power they get to be able to manipulate is through what they look like. So beauty has been a real commodity in the past. But beauty, of course, has always by definition excluded most people in order to make it privileged and precious. So, you know, if you work in the Renaissance, as I do in Italy, you've got a country of dark-haired women, Venus rises from the waves, blonde, right? Right? You're living in a Europe which nobody has enough food to eat. The idea of beauty is women in court clothes with <laughs> bosoms like huge pillows. But I have actually lived in my life through the most appalling vault fast when it comes to the constraints of beauty on women, which is I have lived through a time when we all, many of us, do have enough to eat And yet the concept of what is beautiful has become near to starvation. And what we have done is to, particularly as young women enter puberty, is to suggest to them that rather than their bodies that are coming naturally to them, the one thing they ought to look like is somebody who hasn't eaten for six or seven days who is essentially a size zero model because size zero models work well in our commercial reality as clothes hangers for the fashion. And that's why, you chose what you and that's why yes, sorry, yes. I'll get on with it now. That's and that's why I chose this poem because The poem is a celebration and it should be you should hear it coming out of all girls' schools through a loudspeaker. It's a celebration of a real body. And the reason this poem works, it's got humour, it's got defiance, it's sexy, and apart from everything else, it's got real confidence. And that's what young women so need, which gets taken away from them. So, Nina Sasonia, over to you with an invitation.
6: Invitation by Grace Nichols. If my fat was too much for me, I would have told you. I would have lost a stone or two. I would have gone jogging even when it was fogging. I would have weighed in sitting the bathroom scale with my tail tucked In. I would have dieted more care than a diabetic. But as it is, I'm feeling fine. I feel no need to change my lines. When I move, I am target light. Come up and see me sometime. Come up and see me sometime. Come up and see me sometime. My breasts are huge, exciting, amnions of watermelons your hands can't cup. My thighs are twin seals, fat as slick pups. There's a purple cherry below the blues of my black sea belly. There's a mole that gets a ride each time I shift the heritage of my behind. Come up and see me sometime.
0: William, you You have the next call.
4: Well, in a similar genre, a, a lot of people come and tell me, but mostly women, but that... They're victims of men denigrating what men call their femininity, and by extension, their attractiveness. And I've seen some of the strongest women I've met react like this, and my first reaction is why put the power in their hands? It's not for them, whoever they may be, to judge how you express your femininity. You're the expert in who you are, not them.
2: The Impossibility of Femininity, by Honor Logan. Femininity is not a birthright, but something given and taken away on man's whim. How could a woman ever define her own femininity when it is the currency of men for status, for dominance, for silence? So throw it away, let them bicker the definition and heed what Korzybski said, the word is not the thing. Femininity is merely a word, but you, you are a woman."
0: Sarah, you have a
1: Grace Nichols poem. Another Grace Nichols. She did The Invitation, and I want to live in whatever house she's living in so she can talk to me all the time. Uh, Women, we've done so well, haven't we? And yet, for all the glass ceilings we've broken, we still seem to have to do much multitasking. Uh, The children, the work, the house, the whatever. I've often thought that juggling, the definition is one ball is always falling. Um, and for me, the ball that always fell was housework. Uh, and particularly the kitchen. And particularly the way the surfaces got covered with things that I ought to have wiped off them. And when my mother came, she would run her finger on them just to show they were still there. I've always wanted to find something that made me feel better about Greece. And here it is. Greece. <laughs> Read by Nina. Nina. Yeah.
6: Yeah. <clears throat> Grease by Grace Nichols. Grease steals in like a lover over the body of my oven. <laughs> Grease kisses the knobs of my stove. Grease plays with the small hands of my spoons. Grease caresses the skin of my tablecloth. Grease reassures me that life is naturally sticky. Grease is obviously having an affair with me.
0: William, over to you.
4: Well, many people come and talk to me about their Romantic dilemmas. Should I, shouldn't I? Is he the right one? Is she the right it's one?
0: Incredible. I, mean, it's I, incredible. I know I'm
4: I'm I'm humbled and embarrassed by it, but um
0: <laughs> wow.
4: I think one of the problems in the modern world as well is that we live in an increasingly anxious world about what might happen rather than what has happened. It's partly dominated by headlines. Our newspapers and our tellies are filled with anxiety about what hasn't happened, but what might happen. And uh, what I love about this poem is this this gives you the right to go and make a very big mistake.
7: Um, This is What It Is by Eric Fried. It is madness, says reason. It is what it is, says love. It is unhappiness, says calculation. It is nothing but pain, says fear. It has no future, says insight. It is what it is, says love. It is ridiculous, says pride. It is foolish, says caution. It is impossible, says experience. It is what it is, says love.
0: It's a killer. This is... I, I, I just got to say this, okay, because I probably shouldn't. It's naughty. But this is what it is. It's definitely what it is. That is an incredible poem. I, was just, <laughs> now, I read it like a
1: thousand times. Knock me out.
0: Sarah.
1: <laughs> well, it is what it is, but it's not the only thing in life. Yeah, but well, yeah, it's laid it down. Okay. And, Sarah. Uh, and it seems to me that in order to really appreciate it, you have, to, you have to almost get yourself to be able to appreciate joy in other things too. Because yeah, yeah. otherwise you're really going to spend your life just looking for something that may or may not come and will never be as perfect as you're thinking as it is. And so this poem um, in William's book I think is the perfect jewel for this because it's as fresh as this, it was written yesterday and it's some 700 years old. And it is written by an Indian Sunni Muslim poet who was very good at riddles, he was very good at playing, and so much of the poetry in this book has wit mm. and has humour attached to it, which is one way of getting under one's skin. <laughs> so this is, he visits my town once a year by Amir Kushro, have I said that right? Right? And 700 Martha. years ago, so we
4: don't uh, really Martha know. Is is going to
0: it. Correct it,
1: Right.
7: He visits my town once a year. He fills my mouth with kisses and nectar. I spend all my money on him. Who go? Your man? No. A mango.
0: <laughs> That's great. William, over to you. These are killers. Oh.
4: Um, Well, the expression mansplaining comes up quite a lot in life, doesn't it? And um, I think that Wendy Cope is my favourite modern poet for really dealing with men. I don't know whether you know that famous poem, Two Cures for Love, which goes, one, don't see him, don't phone or write a letter. Two, the easy way, get to know him better. (laughs) That works. This is a, a lovely poem. About mansplaining.
2: Differences of Opinion by Wendy Cope. He tells her that the earth is flat. He knows the facts and that is that. In altercations fierce and long, she tries her best to prove him wrong, but he has learned to argue well. He calls her arguments unsound and often asks her not to yell. She cannot win. He stands his ground. The planet goes on being round.
0: I hope you're getting into the groove of this, because I certainly am. This is totally,
1: totally, totally pharmacy stuff. But, okay. <laughs> but you see, the fact is, we have to get on with them, don't we? And you know what? Men with women, oh, women right. with okay. women, men with men. We have to find a way
0: through this. Then, then, you, then you pick Rumi, the most magnificent, the most perfect.
1: What, the one woman. I'm about to do. That's yeah. right. Yeah, right. That's well. right. Um, And so here's the deal, you do row with your partner, you do, and sometimes you lock horns and you can't unlock them, and somehow you have to get through it. And so I'm particularly fascinated that this poem, and it's very short and very witty and written again 700 years ago by a very famous poet, probably the most famous poet in America, Rumi, who was um, actually Persian originally, has such wisdom that clearly he rowed a great deal with whoever he was living with and came out the other side. So it's called Here is a Relationship Booster, read by Dominic West.
5: Here is a relationship booster that is guaranteed to work. Every time your spouse or lover says something stupid, make your eyes light up <laughs> as if you just heard something brilliant.
0: Wonderful. I just need to add
1: Can I, I just I, add that it reads on the page brilliantly, this poem, because each of the last few words are separate, so you finally arrive at say something brilliant.
4: <laughs> I think what's so intriguing for me that when I went through the process of researching the poems for both of these books, that Rumi and Hafez, who wrote six or seven hundred years ago, pop up all the time. And talking to Iranian people, they'll tell you that in every household there's a book of Hafez's poetry, and that's their poetry pharmacy. And last year, I was opening a kind of co-working building and, and listening to everybody who works there's problems. And halfway through a security guard came to me and he said, your 3:30 is cancelled. And I said, that's fine. And he said, can I, can I take their place? And I said, of course, come and sit down. What, what's troubling you? And he said, well, I'm 31 and I came out when I was 24 but I still haven't had a relationship yet. And I said, that's, that's incredibly sad. What, what do you put it down to? What, what do you think this is all about? And he said, you know, I'm upbeat and I'm positive and I'll be a good person to share life with but at heart my problem is I'm Muslim and I'm gay and I don't feel I can be both. And I said, but there's this Sufi mystic, Hafiz, who wrote 700 years ago, the most important Muslim poet of all time. And he wrote, it happens all the time in heaven and one day it will happen again on earth that men and women who are married and men and men who are lovers and women and women who give each other light will get down on bended knee with tears in their eyes and say to their loved one, how can I be more loving to you? How can I be more kind? And he got up, streaming tears, gave me a big hug, and I'm delighted to say he is now dating. (laughs) It's great. It's a great
0: story. (laughs) Can I ask um, ask the company if there's any... Can you share or add or detract from anything that's been said so far about the work that you're reading so beautifully?
4: There we go. Yes, well, you c- can.
2: Yes, I, I could say that verse, poetry, the careful, succinct choice of words that a good poet uh, uses is uh, something that really helps us as actors to, mem- to remember our lines for a start. You know, that's one of the reasons that Shakespeare was writing in verse was not only because it would be sweet for the audience and would help them to understand complex things because verse has a sort of muscularity of its own where if it's dropped into the ear of the listener, its meaning is- resonates, it-, it magnifies. But also... For the, for, for the memory of the actor, but the, 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 the memory of those of us who... Well, I had a happy time in school learning poetry. Uh, I guess I was a little poetry swat, and I was lucky because I started um, loving poetry before I went to school, because my mother read poems to me, and when she was too busy to read them, the Christopher Robin poems, I had, because of the rhymes, I had almost learnt them... And I could look at the book and find ways of jogging my memory. And by the time I went to school, I could already read because of the Christopher Robin things. And that was the beginning of my acting. So I became a speaker of poetry and a memorizer of poems. And that, by having it in your memory, it's always a companion. You know, there's so many times when uh, I'll look out at nature and... The, some lines of Thomas Hardy will come into my head. And uh, it, it's a companion. You know, you've hit on something I was going to ask you all. I'm a synesthete,
0: and maybe some of you are too, but I won't go into that just to say. Is there an actor-director synesthetic moment in a piece of poetry where or poetic verse where the verse becomes embodied, In other words, you can start to see something. Um, You you got a line, you got Shakespeare, you got that in front of you, you know what you have to do technically. Is something, does something become embodied for you where you can actually see somewhere in your actor's mind this character and know what you're going to do? Because a line is a line is a line, but you got to also you're doing something as well or not doing something. Is there a moment when this sort of all gets wedded and you can see it?
2: You can actually see your character. I guess more than, when something is more poetic and you mentioned Chekhov before, so Mm. uh, it's a bit tricky because there's different translations. It's not our language. But, you know, we're we're, we're lucky enough to have Shakespeare and and a lot of good writers in our language. And it does feel, I think, I've never said this before, so it may sound a little bit Uh, pretentious, I don't know, Uh, but I think that we share this as actors, is that it's a little bit like a choreography. Sure. A bit like a gymnastic exercise with the voice, perhaps, because the lines, with the the careful significance, the verse, the meter, the time, but but the careful choice of words give you a course to navigate yes in a way that in prose it might exactly. just be more logical and straightforward and so it gives you the color the shades and so forth i think so
0: can we go to the next poem
4: and that's you this is a wonderful poem by margaret atwood and when i was when i found this i hadn't realized she was a poet i always thought of her as you know a worldwide award-winning novelist yeah. she was a poet first yeah. but this is a wonderful A really important object lesson in life about the myth of ownership. And that is? Gretchen. The
2: moment. The moment when, after many years of hard work and long voyage, you can stand in the center of your room, house, half acre, square mile, island, country. Knowing at last how you got there and say, I own this, is the same moment when the trees unloose their soft arms from around you. The birds take back their language. The cliffs fissure and collapse. The air moves back from you like a wave and you can't breathe. No, they whisper. You own nothing. You were a visitor, time after time, climbing the hill, planting the flag, proclaiming, we never belonged to you. You never found us. It was always the other way round
1: Sarah, um, when it comes to things in life that have given me equal distress and joy, I suppose parenting comes up pretty high. Uh, because it is both the most awesome job you can have, and yet it's 24-7 and the challenges are always changing. And the poem I've picked here, which um, William beautifully introduces in the book, is one which inhabits both the child and the mother at the same time. You must have had this experience that sometimes at completely the wrong moment, your child asks you a gobsmackingly important question which you have to come up with an answer with while still doing whatever it is you're doing. Uh, And this is a poem about that from both points of view. It's called Making a Fist. It's going to be read by Nina. It's by Naomi Shahab Nye. And I would just add, it really speaks to me because I got very carsick as a child.
6: For the first time on the road north of Tampico. I felt the life sliding out of me, a drum in the desert, harder and harder to hear. I was seven, I lay in the car, watching palm trees swirl a sickening pattern past the glass. My stomach was a melon split wide inside my skin. How do you know if you are going to die? I begged my mother. We had been travelling for days. With strange confidence, she answered, when you can no longer make a fist. Years later, I smiled to think of that journey, the borders we must cross separately, stamped with our unanswerable woes. I, who did not die, who am still living... Still lying in the back seat behind all my questions, clenching and opening one small hand.
0: Well, you got the next one, yes? Uh, this Am I wrong?
4: Is a, no, this is, you're absolutely right. This is a poem um, which I'm very fond of because we live in a world of extremely pushy parenting. I think parents have higher expectations of their children than they ever did in a time where, judging by the children's anxieties I listen to, uh, life is harder than it has ever been. And this poem really tells parents about what they should be really focused on, which is teaching their children... How to love, how to appreciate simple pleasures, how to take care of themselves physically and spiritually. And once you've mastered all those things, the extraordinary will take care of themselves.
5: And this is Dom. Do not ask your children to strive by William Martin. Do not ask your children to strive for extraordinary lives. Such striving may seem admirable, but it is the way of foolishness. Help them instead to find the wonder and the marvel of an ordinary life. Show them the joy of tasting tomatoes, apples and pears. Show them how to cry when pets and people die. Show them the infinite pleasure in the touch of a hand and make the ordinary come alive for them. The extraordinary will take care of itself.
1: Um, Sarah? I want to take the word extraordinary and move it from um, small, intimate things and move it into larger things, which are politics, because I think one of the ways in which we're also very anxious these days, which may exhibit in personal fears and worries, is also that we're living in unprecedented times. And certainly in my lifetime, I have watched what I thought was the triumph of tolerance and liberalism We threaten to be swept away uh, on both sides of the Atlantic by moral chaos and by uh, an attempt to pick off enemies in order that we can work out who we think we are when we become more pure. And so I've picked from William's collection a poem that is a call to arms, and you will have heard it before, but my God, it speaks to this moment. It is by Pastor Martin Niemuller, who was a Lutheran pastor in Germany in the 30s, a nationalist who supported Hitler to begin with, um, then finally realized what was going on, went against Hitler, was imprisoned, survived Dachau, and in '46 wrote some words which have been adapted in many ways to be this poem, and it's called First They Came, and Dominic's going to read it. Thank
5: First They Came by Pastor Martin Niemöller. First they came for the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the Trade Unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out Because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak out for me.
0: I I heard this. As a child, and I didn't know that it was a poem. I thought it was a sermon. Ah. Am I wrong? Do you know,
4: well, I think it goes back to what you said at the beginning about what is a poem. poem. I have used in these books quite often words from songs. A good example will be a wonderful musical written called Carousel in which there are the words, walk on through the rain and you'll never walk alone, Mm -hmm. you'll never walk alone. I think that rings a bell with you out there. You'll hear it chanted at Anfield football ground. If I stood outside Anfield on a Saturday afternoon and said, I love that poem you chanted, I might be in trouble. (laughs) But I think the point is, as I said before, that poetry is all around us in lots of interesting forms and it doesn't have to have the P in front of it to make it a poem.
0: Exactly. Our next work.
4: Our next work is a wonderful poem by one of the most exciting young poets in the world today. She's called Kate Tempest, and I'm sure many of you have seen her or heard her perform or read her wonderful poetry. And this is an extension in a way of what Margaret Atwood was saying about non-attachment, about letting go, not trying to hold on to things. Again, another one of the problems that we perhaps suffer for more and more in the modern world. And Martha is now going to read to you The Point by Kate Tempest.
7: The Point, by Kate Tempest. The days, the days, they break to fade. What fills them, I'll forget. Every touch and smell and taste, the sun about to set, can never last, it breaks my heart. Each joy feels like a threat. Although there's beauty everywhere, Its shadow is regret. Still, something in the coming dusk whispers not to fret. Don't matter what we'll lose today, it's not tomorrow yet.
1: There is next. This is a bit of audience participation, although you may have to do it afterwards, which is, I have a poem, and I don't know who wrote it, and I need some help with it. You see, I thought I'd better hold my end up here with this cornucopia that William had put together. And I did indeed have one poem on my board, which had helped me a great deal, sent by email by somebody, but when I printed it out, I didn't print the name of the poet okay? It's a poem about an anxiety that I think many of us will have, which is what happens as we get to the end of the time when we've worked for a really long time and now we can maybe stop. I am addicted to work. I find it very hard to imagine not working. And yet I do know that there's a world out there yet to taste if I can find a way to give it up. And so this is a poem about stopping, trying hard, and starting just being. But I think it may also be a poem about the idea of stopping writing poetry if you're a poet. And that's why I'd really like to know who wrote it. Anyway, this is called My Life's Work by who the hell knows, but maybe somebody will come up with the answer and uh, Greta's going to read it for us.
2: Less need now to cry out your life in art as if you were finally large enough to contain your darkness and your blazing or to recognize how small you are and how it doesn't matter. Though it seems to matter that you see picked out in slant autumn sunlight three white gulls perfect as porcelain Casting shaky reflections in water, already murky with evening.
0: I think this is, I think this is me now, before we get to our last uh, poem. I, I wanted to bring this sort of tiny speech by a poet called Gwendolyn Brooks. And Gwendolyn Brooks was the poet of my community, Southside of Chicago, the African-American community. She was the first uh, African-American to win the Pulitzer Prize in poetry, and she was the poet laureate of the state of Illinois. And I grew up reading Gwendolyn Brooks and hearing Gwendolyn Brooks. She always would go around the community to halls, to schools, and talk to the kids, and she had in her body and in her voice the poetic dimension. There was nothing that came out of her mouth that wasn't poetry, and this is a tiny speech, she said, to a bunch of kids who were down and out, trying to strive, struggle, make their way in a racist world, in a world that had no hope to them, and she said to them, say to them, say to the downkeepers the sun slappers, the harmony hushers. Even if you are not ready for day, it cannot always be night. You will be right, for that is the hard home run. Live not for battles won. Live not for the end of the song. Live in the alone. It's books. Brooks.
4: Well, that's poetry. Yeah. Of Thank course. you very much. We, speak. we do have two more poems. Yes,
0: we go, go. Okay. So, so that's you now. Yeah,
4: right. Okay, so the next poem is in a way, for me, when the pharmacy began, actually, I was 23 years old and I was attempting to cross the Cromwell Road and the light was... Uh, green and the traffic was whizzing by and the light turned finally turned to red and the man standing next to me walked into the road and a car jumped the lights and hit him. And I can still 35 years on here and see what was at the time the most shocking thing that had ever happened to me in my life. And luckily in the crowd, somebody ran down to help this man and grabbed me to help him and he was a first aider. And between us, we gave this man uh, the breath, the kiss of life, and amazingly, a pulse returned. Um, an ambulance took him away. The police took our statements. And in no time, I was standing in the same point in the Cromwell Road with the traffic flowing. And the only evidence I had of this extraordinary and shocking experience was that I had blood on my hands. And I had learnt off by heart a poem recently um, called Ambulances by Philip Larkin, in which he talks about that moment when you're standing in your own street and an ambulance comes and takes one of your next-door neighbours away, probably for the last time, and you sense the solving emptiness that lies just under everything you do and for a moment get it whole, so permanent and blank and true. And those lines and the very large gin and tonic I ordered in the pub helped me process at the time something really really shocking and in retrospect um, I think to use a modern term I was self-medicating with poetry uh, but that was the beginning for me and I've included in this book and Dominic will now read you this wonderful poem one thing to say it's written in the 1950s so the ambulances were grey Dominic
5: Ambulances by Philip Larkin Closed, like confessionals, they thread loud noons of cities, giving back none of the glances they absorb. Light, glossy grey, arms on a plaque. They come to rest at any curb. All streets in time are visited. Then children strewn on steps or road, or women coming from the shops, past smells of different dinners, See a wild white face that overtops red stretcher blankets momently as it is carried in and stowed. And sense the solving emptiness that lies just under all we do. And for a second, get it whole. So permanent and blank and true. The fastened doors recede, poor soul, they whisper at their own distress. For borne away in deadened air, may go the sudden shut of loss round something nearly at an end, and what cohered in it across the years, the unique random blend of families and fashions, there at last begin to loosen. Far from the exchange of love to lie unreachable inside a room that traffic parts to let go by, brings closer what is left to come, and dulls to distance all we are. Can I,
0: Please. and that's bravo, Dominic. I want to say something that isn't from a poetry, and I'll tell you why this poem is magnificent. A great poet, and you did it, you did it with your voice, so maybe because you were doing it, you weren't standing back. To me, a great poet, literally in a moment in the poem when you don't expect it, they step up a gear. I mean, the gear
4: steps up. But, but, the key to Philip Larkin, and why he, I think, was the greatest poet of the last half of the 20th century, perhaps, is Philip Larkin grabs the moments that we all want to push away from our psyches. And he holds on to them and he explores them in completely accessible, universal language without showing off and saying, I'm a gifted poet and let me give you elegant variation. And if you read his poetry, there's poetry about every single thing we're frightened of. But he explores it and makes it wholly and utterly accessible. But you
0: know what, I'm going to push back on that a minute because you're right but I'm talking about the body. I mean, this man pushes the gear up, and he, and, and he does it imperceptibly You, as you're looking at the ordinary things that he's writing about. He literally, as you're in there, looking at the ambulance, looking at all the things that are happening, the windows, Larkin gets in there, and he steps this thing up. And you did it with your voice, Dominic. You went in there, and you followed it straight up, it is just a masterpiece. But but it's
2: the collision of the
1: detail and then the existential thought underneath it, isn't it? I mean, that most famous poem, they fuck you up, your mum and dad, they do not mean to, but they do, goes into then, man hands on misery to man, it deepens like a coastal shelf. What an extraordinary image. Get out as quickly as you can and never have any kids. Yeah, yourself. but
0: I'm saying if, you're,
1: if, you're, if you don't
0: know that image, you can still feel what's going on. That's right. And if you don't know a British ambulance, if you don't know what that looks like, you still feel what he's doing. And that's the genius of this man. Yeah. I'm going to take two and three questions at a time or responses or feelings to anyone here. Okay. Right, there it is. Hi, thank
7: you. That was beautiful. Can we have another one, please? That's it? All right. <laughs> thank we you. Well. well, that's them. Thank you. Oh, come yes. on.
1: There must be an anxiety yes. out yes. there that needs yes. William's help. Thank you, guys. That was wicked. Um, I'd love to ask you all, is there a particular poem that helped you through a tough time or a bit like you were saying you know, with the ambulances. Mm-hmm. Is there anyone that the panel particularly resonate with?
0: Uh, can we wait a Let's do one more
1: and then we'll do that. I have never written a poem and I don't think I ever will. But for me, good poetry is philosophy. And um, one of my favorite things, usually at Christmas to say to the family, no more boring toasts. Can we please have something a little more interesting? And I think a couple of years ago I said, not very appropriate really for Christmas... I think it was a houseman With whom my heart is laden For the golden friends I had Many a rose-lipped maiden And many a light-foot lad By brooks too broad for leaping The light-foot boys are laid And the rose-lipped girls lie sleeping In a field where flowers fade In other words, get on with your life Today counts, do it now For me, poetry has to be philosophy
0: Thank you Thank you Number three yeah, it's good behind you. Yes.
7: Thank you. Um, it's been amazing. Um, Martha, I think you write your own poetry, so I was wondering if you could share something with us.
0: Yeah, but she might not Or one, one of you. your favourites,
7: <laughs> if not. You
0: maybe she... Yeah, I mean, do you want to? I no, can. I mean, you know... I can. I, I,
7: yeah, you want to? I'll just okay. get it up on my phone. Oh, Shall we answer the other questions first? Okay, <laughs> get <laughs>
0: your phone. a phone. Yes? Little,
1: a, a person here, here would like to ask a question.
3: What do you think would be your favourite poem about how hard it is to be twelve? How hard <laughs> is it to be what? Twelve.
4: <laughs> how hard it is it to be twelve? How hard
3: actually, is it
7: to be twelve? Actually, the, the poem that I've written is about how hard it is to be twelve.
4: Okay, well Martha <laughs> is going to tell you because the poem she's written is about just about that question: how hard it is to be twelve.
5: <laughs> I think they fuck you up. Your mum and dad's a good one. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's, you're the dad.
7: <laughs> but you knew
5: that. I know him.
7: <laughs> this might not be... This was, this was about the time that I was 12, is the, t- the time I'm writing about, but um, it's generally about being a woman and, like the poem earlier on, about sort of... And As, you, as Sarah um, alighted on, how you, you suddenly grow in into something that people perceive you as something completely different to what you feel like inside. Um, So this is called uh, Tumescent Adolescence. Eleven years old, girls' toilets, four peers. Surrounding my cubicle, shouting, Why are you changing in here? I stare down on myself, confused at what protrudes. What had I done to deserve this bodily abuse? To sprout up and out of myself, beyond myself and further... I'm ten feet taller than boys, breasts bigger than my mother's. But unlike men who grow too fast, whose voices deepen too quick, I'm stared at on the bus, told I'm sexy and thick. My childish mind rushing, I feel cumbersome and sickened by my arms that now feel heavy, by my soft hips, thighs thickened. They can't hide now I've begun to spill, call attention to me loud and shrill, like a brattish child that won't sit still, when all I want's to be unassuming, chill, like I was when I was just a kid still. Getting dressed in the morning used to be like putting on an extra layer of skin. Now it feels like a way to cloak up what's within. I've learned to ask mum for extra large trousers and tops to avoid comments on, wow, how I look so grown up. Oblivious, I had chucked on my 10-year-old clothes. My dad tells me that's obscene. Am I naked? I'm exposed. (laughs) Little brothers look bare silly in undersized shirts, but when my sexualized body grows, it causes eyes to avert in embarrassment that a swelling girl like me still could wear such tiny skirts. I'm past beginning to fill. Family warned me to cover up. M&S referred to my bust. Dudes on cr- streets croak, well buff. I'm trying to be tough, but that seems harder with a muff. I love it. And then, sorry, I can stop now if you want. Yeah. I, it goes on a little longer, but I can stop. Go, st- go, go. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is slightly more less PG, so maybe block your... It's I don't know. Many it, will, it will take you forward. It's wonderful. Uh, and then the boys at high school, half my height, twice the horn, with their crude remarks, I am strewn apart torn, in chemistry, they pass around a woman on an iPad, taut pink balloons like the ones blown up at birthday parties by your dad, wet lips, messy hair, eyes twisted in discomfort, or rapture, both like sinking in a hot bath and doing a hard shit. And it's no guessing, which year sevens, chest most is before I'm distressing, compressing myself, lessening as they're undressing me in their minds. Winking, jesting, chiseling my obsessors with their hands, coalescing at the back, caressing with aggression, making merriment at my excesses, playing games of touch the pussy, they cheer and gloat. I love your feistiness. Sorry? I do. No, I was just saying,
0: I I love your feistiness. I I love it. I love it. Should I stop? You know what? I'm (laughs) going to ask, I'm going to ask (laughs) you... Did that answer your question? No.
7: No. The ending answers the question. Not that part. Sorry. And, and, and let me say something
0: else to you. But I want you to know there's lots of other ways it could go. You know what? But, but, but let me say to you that my dad said the same thing to me when I was going out of the house. And it was the same thing. It's, 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 it's universal. It's beautiful. You're naked. Yes. yes. You're naked. What are you doing with that skirt? It's fabulous. Sorry. I love your I No, it's fabulous. No. I love it. <laughs> love it. Love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. Okay, the last thing we're going to do, the last thing we're going to do, the doctors in the house ask him to prescribe a poem for you over to William. Blind. Who? Okay, Wim says Blimey. Right? Who? Anyone? I'm yes. Fine. Yes.
4: Hello. Um, I'm a long-term sufferer of anxiety. Um, I would love to have a, a poem prescribed particularly for that. Please. <laughs> uh, I think there are lots of poems for anxiety. Um, there's one in particular I would like to read, and I don't have it in front of me, and uh, my computer is not turned on, but I do have an anxiety poem in this book, and I just need to find it sort of to give me a tick but I would really recommend The Peace of Wild Things, which is a wonderful poem by Wendell Berry, all about when I lie awake at night and worry about what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the woodrake rests in his beauty by the water and the great heron sings and I rest in the comfort of stars and starlight, and I don't know it off by heart. It's,
0: it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's, in one.
4: it's in volume one, and well I haven't done. got it in my hand. But it, it's a very beautiful poem, and I would recommend that.
0: Are you happy? Good. Anyone else? Any, any more questions to the doctor? Yes.
7: Thank you. So I wanted to ask whether there's a certain bias in reading and appreciating poetry. For example, a poetry may feel more touching when it's about a subject that you were kind of that you've kind of felt. Do you think that certainly poetry is kind of like the language of the minority, like a language that you feel only when you have experienced certain experiences or we can appreciate poetry whether we have or not kind of experienced the same thing as the poetry touches on?
4: Well, that's an interesting question. I and mean, I think the point is that if you have experienced what the poet has experienced, it'll help make you make sense of what you've been through. And I suppose rather like people talk about the wisdom of age, which is absolute rubbish, by the totally. way. There's no totally. wisdom of age. Totally. But the more you experience, to some extent, the more you can refer and make sense of it. I- I've had the delightful experience of rereading a poem recently and actually, learning it off by heart, which I, a poem I've been reading all my life, and it was my mum's favourite poem, and she died earlier this year. And it's called the Four Quartets. And when I first tried to read it as a teenager, I could make no sense of it at all. And as I got older and older, mm-hmm. I would reread it every few years and get something different from it. I've now committed to myself I'm going to learn it off by heart, and I'm halfway through it. It's quite a long poem, but by inhabiting this poem, I've had the most extraordinary set of revelations about life and the meaning of life. And if I'd read that poem at 20 or 30, it would have not made any sense to me.
1: But I'd also like to add, I mean, I came here initially saying I'm not a poet, I'm a novelist. But what novelists and poets both share is the ability to imaginatively lift you out of your own experience and enter you into somebody else's that they can inform and create empathy. And so sometimes it's really great to read experiences or go to places that you have no experience of in order to be able to inhabit difference. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that at this moment in our lives, we really need to be able to inhabit difference. 100% correct. I totally,
0: totally agree with that. I think we are now much too categoried, we're a little bit too siloed. Some of those are nice silos, some of those are bad silos. But as far out of your experience that you can read, the better, because that stretches you, makes you bigger, and it's always the best way to go. Outside, like a good jazz musician. (laughs) Uh, One one, uh, One more poem. Yes, yes, one
1: more poem. Do you want to start, William, and then I'll just...
4: Well, this picks up, I think, on uh, what Sarah was saying earlier on and 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 she she has other things to say about it, but it it, it comes in the category that I've put need for kindness. I think we're really, really stressed and anxious and in the ten years I've been listening to people's problems, the last two years, the quality, if that's the right word, of anxiety has increased exponentially and it's obviously because of Brexit's and Trump's and climate extinction and all kinds of things. But, we, you know, we should be wary because if we're this disturbed as adults, just imagine what it's like to be 14. Um, exactly. The level of anxiety, the level of unkindness in the world, of incivility, uh, uncivility, whatever the right word is, uh, is quite startling. And so I chose this wonderful poem by Naomi because I think we all need it.
1: And I would just add that uh, I I think that underneath some of the dominant feelings that so many of us have, which is um, hatred, which is intolerance, which is anger, is often fear. Um, And it's a a fear that people don't understand what we have been through, and therefore you're ignoring us. And I think that both sides of the divide can feel those feelings. And the thing about kindness is, you have to lift out of your own fear and your own set of hatreds and feelings and lift out to another person. And I think it is that act that works really well. And this poem's really interesting because. It grows from an experience that the poet herself had, which is she was on a a bus with her husband. It was their uh, honeymoon, and they were on a bus in South America, and on that bus ride, everything they had was stolen. Anyone who's ever been to South America will know this story. And she's left sitting in the square of a little town while her husband goes off to try and find out what the hell he's going to do. And a man comes up to her and says, Are you all right? Can I help you at all? And she says that he felt as if he could understand because something had happened to him. And she says the poem came to her in that moment. And I think it helps to know a little bit about the genesis of the poem to understand it. Great. Thank you, Nina. Kindness
6: by Naomi Shihab Nye. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out of the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone Who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere. Like a shadow or a friend.
0: That is a powerful and beautiful way to end. And remember, in a way, that we're at a crossroads in human history, our technology is outpacing us. And poetry helps us to hold on and to grasp to the parts of us that are human and that we can express ourselves through that no machine can make, no machine can break. I want to thank the company here tonight Greta Scotchi and I said, ooh, I did it. Greta Scotchy, <laughs> Nina Sasanya, Dominic West, and Martha West. Thank you very, very much. And let me just let me just be let me just be a fangirl and say these people on this stage at this point in time, I couldn't even imagine. Anyway, thank you so much. And Sarah Donat, who's just been my shadow sister for 20 years. And, of course, William Siegert who has given us these two beautiful volumes of his own encounter, not only with the public, I think, but with himself in many ways. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. Don't forget, William Seacart will be back on stage for our event, The Power of Poetry, Words to Heal and Inspire, at the Tabernacle in London on the evening of the 5th of December. Head to intelligencesquared.com for tickets or see more in the episode description. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet.